This program is sponsored by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Students and faculty aren't just ready for change at the Scripps College, they're hungry for it. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Philip Ewing, National Security Editor for National Public Radio, about the latest attacks on the FBI and the Department of Justice and other recent happenings in Washington. Phil is a veteran Washington reporter on military and security matters, and he breaks down for us what's really going on in Washington behind the headlines. Phil, you and I are talking at about 10.15 on Tuesday, February 6th, and I say that because things could change so much before this is published at 3 a.m. tomorrow, February 7th. Let's talk first about the Battle of the Memos. Uh, Let's set this up a little bit, and then I really want to get beyond the memos and talk about the attacks on the FBI and the Department of Justice. But before we do that, let's let's set this up. You know, you you've covered uh, security issues and and military issues uh, for the bulk of your career. You're the national security editor now at NPR. This battle of the memos. We've had the Nunez memo released last week. Uh, really not uh, with the splash that they probably hoped it would have. Now, just as of Monday night, we have the uh, House Intelligence Committee saying, yes, send the 10-page Democratic memo on to the president. Uh, Talk about that just mechanically a little bit, if you could. Let me begin by saying that I'm not a lawyer, and that's a great credit to the legal profession, uh, someone I used to work with used to say. But what appears to be happening here is that Republican allies of President Trump in Congress are trying to come up with a defense strategy that fits some of the facts of the case. And in doing so, they are giving an alternate theory of what they think might have happened or what they think the story is about in service of their larger goal to protect him from embarrassment and to raise doubt about whatever will issue from the work of the special counsel, Robert Mueller, who's working behind the scenes in the Justice Department. And one of the things that advantages all parties in this matter is that Mueller's work is taking place completely behind the scenes. His office almost uh, never leaks. No one knows what he's doing or what evidence he has or what interviews he's done or what witnesses he's relying upon or what evidence he's relying upon for wherever his investigation is going to go next, which means there's this big void, this this blank space in the public square that anyone can fill. And the way Republicans have chosen to fill it is most recently complaining about what they call bias inside the FBI and the Justice Department, which brings us to the war of the memos. Um, There was evidently some kind of evidentiary process involving the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is what approves 
uh, wiretap and other surveillance um, by the FBI and law enforcement organizations against Americans whom are suspected of being involved with foreign intelligence surveillance activity. And uh, one of the people in the Trump campaign in 2016, Carter Page, uh, was the subject of some of this FISA process. What the first Republican memo by the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, said was the feds and justice had uh, wrongly and irresponsibly and scurrilously relied on unverified information in the form of that infamous Christopher Steele dossier in order to get a judge to authorize this collection on Page. Carter mm-hmm. Page was uh, allegedly a subject of uh, surveillance by the United States government back as early as 2013. That's right. The particular application to the FISA court that is being talked about in the Nunez memo is in 2016. So this wasn't the initiating warrant. This was for a renewal. Do I have it right? Well, I don't know if that aspect of the story has been clarified. There are conflicting reports in the open press, separate from the Nunes memo, about whether this was the first rodeo for federal law enforcement officers and asking the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court for a warrant on page. And uh, some indications are that perhaps the feds had been collecting on him in 2013 and 2014 and then stopped and then based on their previous awareness of his activities or alleged contacts with um, Russian intelligence officers, that might have been the basis for them asking to turn the warrant on. And the reason this story is so fraught for people like me on the outside is we have completely imperfect information and the insights we get into the process, especially through things like this once secret Republican memo, are through a partisan filter. And you can't see the actual documents. The actual documents are sealed and part of the secret FISA process that goes to a judge for the judge to make an ultimate determination. That's right. And what we don't know is, for example, in the case of Page in October of 2016, whether, for example, that was an application for a reauthorization or that was the first time ever uh, the feds had gone to the judge and asked for a warrant. We don't know the totality of the evidence that the FBI and Justice Department presented in that application. So, for example, if some of the things the feds gave to this judge were from the infamous and unverified dossier, does that mean that was the extent of the presentation? Or were there 10 more exhibits that included, uh, and this is, I'm just making this up, uh, that included uh, communications that they had collected under a different part of FISA that they uh, detected Page talking with foreigners overseas who were already the subject of surveillance, or were there other bits of evidence that suggested in the minds of investigators that this person was a good candidate uh, to have their communications collected? We don't know the answers to any of those questions. All we know is what was in that original Nunes memo, which focuses on the weakest aspect of the case. The the Steele dossier, which um, our news organization NPR has never detailed, Um, because it remains unverified, but which everyone knows about because it was posted in an unexpurgated form at the beginning of 2017, has always been the most salacious and explosive aspect of the story, but the least trustworthy. And that's why... Uh, uh, that's why in the in the politics of this, it makes the most sense for Trump and his allies to focus their efforts most strongly there, because 
No one can prove it. It could be disinformation from the Russian government. It could just be people making things up. And another aspect of the Nunes memo was uh, a, a bit of evidence from the Justice Department and the FBI that this former British intelligence officer, Christopher Steele, was basically a never-Trumper. He told his contacts in justice and the FBI he hated Trump. He didn't want him to become president. He would do everything he could to stop it from happening. And that speaks to this Republican narrative about bias in the process. So Steele not only is bringing in this tittle-tattle that no one can verify, he himself is not a neutral arbiter here. He has an axe to grind against Trump. And all that could well be true. Um, what the focus on that aspect of the story leaves out, however, is that there's a great deal more evidence to support a thesis about potential collusion between Americans in the United States and the Russian attack against the election that took place starting in 2015 and in some ways continues to this day. And so the political strategy, apart from all that, is focus on the weakest aspect of the case, put the FBI and the Justice Department on trial and uh, remain on offense and lean into this as opposed to just sitting back and trying to knock down charges or knock down reports in the press, which uh, is another way that uh, the president's allies could have gone about this. And then one other aspect to the Nunez memo, and then we'll move on to the Democratic memo, is that uh, the allegation from Nunez and others that the FBI did not disclose that uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign had some aspect of payment to uh, GPS or to steal uh, in in collecting this information. Yet it was discovered late on Monday that it was in fact in a footnote and was in fact part of the FISA application. But again, not only to raise a defense, but to raise the uh, sort of boogeyman specter of Hillary Clinton, correct? I think that's right. The origins of this dossier are that in the primaries in 2016, a conservative donor associated with the Washington Free Beacon, which is a conservative newspaper uh, here in town, went to this private uh, intelligence company, Fusion GPS, and asked for what we call oppo research on Trump and his connections. And then once the primaries fizzled out and Trump uh, became the nominee, that work then began to be underwritten by uh, Democratic donors who were affiliated with Hillary Clinton's campaign. And so it is correct that the substance of the dossier and the work that pushed into the summer and fall of 2016 was underwritten by Clinton donors and Democrats. And Republicans' case is that the biased contacts for those Democrats in the FBI and Justice Department were aware that this material was not neutral evidence collected by investigators um, duly sworn or appointed in the way they might be under the FBI or a police department, but instead agitproper oppo that had been ginned up by enemies of the president. That was then used to ask this FISA uh, judge for a warrant on Carter Page. And, um, you know, that's the origin the, the, in the Republican telling, excuse me, in the Republican telling the uh, scurrilous and disreputable origin of the whole Russia investigation. Um, again, this is a defense strategy that a trial lawyer might use. Um, one of my colleagues compared it to Johnny Cochran's strategy of putting the LAPD on trial when O.J. Simpson was on trial and focusing the efforts of the court elsewhere and raising doubt in, in the minds of jurors by pointing out all the problems with this institution 
persecution that was involved with the process. We don't know enough to know what to make of that case. But if you take a step back and think about it, why didn't these uh, biased deep state conspirator Democrats inside the FBI and Justice Department just install Hillary Clinton as president if they had this kind of power? Why in 2016 did the FBI uh, go ahead with a public statement uh, following its notification to Congress that they were reopening the email matter from when she was Secretary of State because of copies of messages they found on Anthony Weiner's laptop computer? She was the Weiner was the husband right. of uh, Clinton's top aide, Huma Abedin, and uh, in the telling of Democrats, the FBI is what cost uh, Clinton the election in 2016 because of those announcements. That's why this story is so red hot, and that's why Democrats are so keen to fight back because they have an extra grind with the FBI and the Justice Department too. And uh, if you look at the totality of the evidence, the uh, narrative about the whole Russia investigation being fictional just doesn't hang together. But again, that's not really what the focus is here. The other outcome of this process with all the memo mania is that we're talking about the memo. We're trying to take apart these incredibly inscrutable gossamer threads of fact and uh, conjecture and speculation from highly dense legal documents. And what we're not talking about is the meeting that Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort convened in Trump Tower and June of 2016 with a delegation of Russians based on an offer that they understood based on emails was from the Russian government giving its support to the Trump campaign, for example, or the meetings that Kushner and then National Security Advisor Mike Flynn took with the head of uh, Russian bank VEB after the election or with Russia's ambassador after the election. There's a great deal more putative evidence about a collusion case than just these FISA warrants or this memo. But because we're not talking about it, it's a tactical win for the president and his allies because they've pushed all those aspects of the story to the side. And instead, we're talking about conspiracy theories. And The uh, analogy to Johnny Cochran uh, and the OJ trial, I've heard that several times. One thing, though, that I think I th- think is worthy of discussing before we go to the Democrats, is that when we're talking about Johnny Cochran and the OJ, we were talking about trial strategies. What works in a trial? I've been in hundreds of trials, you know, and it's a contained kind of environment. What works with a particular jury? What works with a particular judge? What we're seeing is normal trial tactics being used in the political arena before any charges have even been brought. That's correct. And it also is kind of political science 101, at least in our modern era. Um, H.L. Mencken had a great bit of wisdom when he said, the people in the United States are always on the side of the prosecution. And even when I have to defend someone, Mencken said, I do so by tearing down his enemy or his opponent. And that's what's taken place for decades um, on the behalf of politicians in both parties, and most recently Republicans, because they happen to be the ones in power with reporters in the press. And what do the president and his allies say every time there's a story they don't like? They call it fake news fake or they news, talk about right. bias. And the great thing from a politician's perspective about bias is it's one of those things that everyone agrees is bad. Um, everyone uh, does not want to be accused of being guilty of it. And as soon as you start throwing it around, it becomes this pervasive vapor where 
where you can't ever put it back in the box. And the lower uh, you can get the trust of your own supporters and as many general uh, members of the public as possible, the better the case is, which is why for the past several months, the president and his supporters have been attacking federal law enforcement, the FBI and the Justice Department. Historically, the FBI, for all of its um, crimes and uh, transgressions and abuses of power has been one of the most admired institutions in the United States. In the old days, the the old bromide used to be NASA and the FBI are the only two aspects of the government that most Americans actually like. And <laughs> I don't know about NASA anymore, but I know that the FBI and the Justice Department have taken a huge hit to their reputations since this sandblasting began late last year. Um, again, because whatever, no one seems to know what's at the bottom of this, not the leadership in Congress, not the president. Uh, but when the special counsel's office issues more um, information or it brings more indictments or whatever comes next, it's important for the president and his supporters to have their supporters out in the country have a grain of doubt in their minds about anything that issues from the FBI and the Justice Department. So if Mr. Mueller brings charges against people in the cabinet or members of the president's family, let's just say they need people out in the country to say, wait, aren't these the same biased deep state Democrats that tried to rig the election two years ago and have been fighting against the president this entire time? Maybe that's true and maybe that's not. And mostly we haven't found it to be the case, but that's what people, that's what they need people to think whatever Mueller comes up with, whenever he comes up with it. Okay, on the Democratic side, the Democrats tried to issue a 10-page memo uh, simultaneous with the Republican memo. The Republicans in the House Intelligence Committee uh, last week or a week and a half ago said, no, we're not going to do it. We're just going to go with uh, our memo then Monday night, last night, they, they came in and said, we want to issue this 10-page memo in rebuttal. The House Intelligence Committee unanimously said fine. It now goes to the president's office or the White House for review for five days to see whether it should be unclassified. Talk about that dynamic, both from the political sense and from the White House sense. That's right. Chairman Nunes of California of the Intelligence Committee prepared his memo in his telling initially for members of his own committee and also fellow Republicans in the House to be able to have talking points or understand their perspective about the problems with uh the evidence involved in the page surveillance, according to them. And when that became, when there, when there began to be a groundswell about releasing it publicly, the Democrats on the minority in the Intel Intelligence Committee responded with their own much longer um, answer to that memo. The Nunes memo is three and a half pages, roughly. We understand from people who've looked at it that the Democratic memo is about 10 pages. What does that mean? Uh, what does it say? We don't know yet because it remains secret. But um, the political calculations for the White House will be uh, heavily dependent on what the Democratic memo says. So, for example, if all it is is an extremely dense legalistic citation about U.S. Code Title 50 and what intelligence powers are um, authorized to the 
feds or the Justice Department or whatever, uh, that might not cause too many problems for the president. And they could release an unredacted version because at this point, then it just becomes a tennis match where we had our say, you have your say, then we'll all move on. But if the Schiff memo, because Schiff, as the ranking member, also has access to these privileged uh, secrets, as the chairman, Mr. Nunes, says, for example, the FISA court authorized surveillance on 10 more people in the Trump camp in 2016, and there were never any problems with the evidence there, that could be a real problem because the White House clearly doesn't want that type of evidence to be out in the public square. And uh, I think that will be the lens through which uh, administration officials look at this document and then decide to release it. The other wrinkle that Schiff has uh, brought about is he wants to make the point at what he calls the recklessness of the Trump administration to release this Nunes memo completely sight unseen. The president and his top aide said that they would make sure it got out before they even went through the formal process of reviewing it. What Schiff has said is that he wants the FBI and Justice Department to look at what's in it and make redactions if they feel that there are dangers to uh, FISA procedure or sources and methods of their investigation or intelligence collection before it actually comes out. So what could be the cases, we had this Nunes memo, four pages, with no redactions whatsoever, even though it alludes to some of the closest held secrets in the U.S. government about FISA targets and FISA process. And it could be the case that this shift memo comes out, and it does have some of those black lines or big black squares in the pages if the feds or justice or the White House, for their for whatever reason, decide to make those redactions. And those that also gives uh, Democrats a card to play if they can then argue oh, these redactions are inappropriate. This was just done for political reasons to protect Trump from embarrassment, if in fact that what happens. Um, but we're not there yet. We'll have to see over the course of this week where the story goes in terms of what final version of this is released. Well, it seems to me that if Trump uh, says this is going to remain classified, then obviously he's handed the Democrats a, a huge argument. If he and or others go through and redact the document, they still give the Democrats an an argument. Uh, It seems uh, that the Democrats have played this to uh, the maximum, uh, having been delayed in issuing it initially. Would Would that be accurate? Among Democrats, I think that probably is the case. But among the broader population. I I don't know how this will play. And certainly among the president's supporters, um, I am not sure that anyone is that concerned about the release of the Schiff memo. The other thing that's been interesting to me about the story is, irrespective of the actual contents of these memos, the president and his supporters can characterize them in whatever way they want. So for example, the case that they've made in their public comments is that the Nunes memo describes a systemic pattern of abuse by the feds and justice uh, that amounts to a tyrannical abuse of surveillance authority, when in fact what the memo describes, um, barring all the partisan aspects of it, is actually a very targeted Uh, in its telling abuse of these surveillance powers. In other words, the memo does not say the FBI and Justice Department have been running roughshod over constitutional law involving every target of FISA process. It confines itself very specifically to this case of Carter Page. But it's been convenient and expedient for the president's supporters because, again, they're trying to make this case about bias and the deep state to just 
gloss over that and say whatever they want. So I'm not sure it'll depend heavily on what the Democrats memo says in terms of the way that story actually gets told and covered and described by the political people involved. And the other thing about this is we could move on from the memos after the Democrats memo come out, comes out and uh, get onto something else. You know, the, the people who are driving this story are making a case, um, based on what seems most expedient to them at the time. And if the facts of the case change, because by the time we get through this process, there's more Mueller indictments or there's been another big bombshell in the New York Times, then we could be in a completely different place by next week or the week after. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's game research and immersive design lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. The memo issue, I, I, I agree, could be one that's just not very important come <laughs> next week or even come the end of this week. But, And I really don't think the people in the heartland give a damn uh, about this. But what is lasting is the damage to the FBI and, and the Department of Justice. Uh, that seems to be what's lasting and what some critics are saying is just uh, unthinkable. It's been a huge issue inside the FBI. My colleague Ryan Lucas did a big story for the radio and for our website NPR.org in which current and former FBI officials say they are concerned not about the political leadership in Washington whose job is kind of to deal with this craziness and to go and be sandblasted in Congress or to go and meet with the president, but the rank and file G-man or G-woman who has to work out of a field office in uh, Columbus or Cincinnati and do the normal investigations that the FBI does. And Apart from dealing with bad guys, FBI investigators need to get people to trust them and become witnesses in investigations or let them review uh, certain aspects of whatever the case hap- at the time happens to be. And what those investigators told my colleague Ryan Lucas was they're really worried about the long-term implications for people in that world where right. if you have all this doubt that's been raised about the integrity of the, uh, the, integrity of the FBI, whether somebody uh, who knocks on your door to ask you questions about a case is a deep state Democrat who's got some kind of hidden agenda, um, that could be problematic. At the same time, we shouldn't pretend that the FBI has not been controversial before in its history and that indeed it does not have a history of its own of of, uh, an ugly abuse of power. And that's something that um, congressional black Democrats in the congressional um, 
Black Caucus very often point out when they have Justice Department or FBI officials up there, they say, you know, J. Edgar Hoover tried to get Dr. Martin Luther King to kill himself, and he was running an active measures campaign against him and black activists during the 1960s. And there's a very ugly history about the abuse of power of federal law enforcement and about the FBI, which is something that continues to be a very real phenomenon in the way the Bureau at least is perceived and overseen in Washington. And if nothing else, this could just take its reputation down among white Americans in the same way that it's been low among black Americans for many years as well. Um, not a good outcome in either case, but at, but at the same time, the FBI has been contro- controversial before, um, and it's been controversial from its very early days, even before it was the FBI, before when it was the BOI, the Bureau of Investigation. Published uh, in the New York Times on February 6th, released online late on February 5th, and uh, articles saying that uh, the legal counsel for the president, uh, except for Ty Cobb, saying we're advising the president not to voluntarily uh, give an interview uh, to Mueller's team. Step back for us a bit, Phil, and and talk about this process. Is it true that even if he doesn't voluntarily go for a a statement, that he could be subpoenaed to the grand jury and that cause some kind of constitutional confrontation? Sticking with my asterisk from before that I'm not a lawyer, right. um, I, I do I do understand, we do understand from White House officials and people on the president's legal team that these negotiations have been continuing between the White House and specifically Trump and his legal team and the office of the special counsel. And some of the negotiations take place behind the scenes in conference room between attorneys who meet face to face, and some of them take place in public Um, in the press via CNN, via that New York Times report you read, and other avenues, because there isn't just a legal aspect to this, there's also a political aspect. Uh, From from my understanding, the uh, options that are available to Mueller are the same options available uh, if his target were any other person, and that he could, uh, if the president does not comply, ask a grand jury for a subpoena and serve the president with that subpoena, and then um, we would be in a situation not unlike the one that other presidents have faced, if I understand correctly, when, for example, President Bill Clinton had to give an interview um, as part of the Kenneth Starr investigation, and also President George W. Bush had to talk with um U.S. Attorney Patrick Fitzgerald when he was interviewing him uh, about the Valerie Plame matter during the first Bush administration, if memory serves. What I don't know what would happen is if the president gets the subpoena and says no, because the president's attorneys argue that Mueller doesn't have standing to ask him the questions he wants to ask them. Um, there, that may be a knowable question uh, that a, that a legal expert could answer. I just personally don't know. I also know that the politics here are fraught for the president because, in speaking with lawyers uh, myself for our coverage, outside attorneys who've 
dealt with these kinds of situations before. Almost invariably, what they say is you can't let a witness into this situation because, among many other reasons, it's a potential perjury trap for the president. We know what type of talker Donald Trump is. He likes to exaggerate. He likes to prevaricate. He's a bold talker. Um, there have been stories in the Washington Post and elsewhere about the evidence he's given in past legal proceedings, including his depositions when he's been under oath. And uh, if you're his lawyer, you've got to imagine that you must protect him from that situation because if there's no other problem that he's dealing with, at very least, he could be in a problem with uh, saying something that's not true to investigators. But it would be very difficult politically at the same time for the president to invoke his Fifth Amendment right not to talk to Mueller because it would incriminate himself. That would be a concession to his supporters in Congress, his supporters out in the country, that there might have been some underlying crime here or transgression, even though they've maintained all along that that was not the case. Trump has tried to walk a tightrope here. He burst into a meeting, uh, a briefing that was taking place at the White House with reporters a couple of weeks ago and said he's looking forward to talking with Mueller and he'll talk with them under oath and he has nothing to hide and he's cooperating fully with his investigation with the caveat that he would, of course, listen to the advice of his counsel. <laughs> so he's he's tried to take a good political position and say, I've got nothing to hide. I've done nothing wrong. I want to talk with Mueller. But if his lawyers per that New York Times story and other reports are telling him not to do it, um, maybe he'll take their advice and plead the fifth or maybe uh, try to fight in some other way a prospective subpoena if one eventually reach them inside the White House. <laughs> Let's blame it on the lawyers, right? Uh, that seems to be their strategy. Right. Two other issues I want to talk about, if if we could, beyond all of the hubbub about the memos and, and interviews in the Russia investigation – We've got a potential government shutdown this week, and the president refused to impose the Russian sanctions uh, passed by Congress uh, nearly unanimously, not unanimously, but nearly unanimously. Uh, let's talk about those two in that order, government shutdown. I'm not sure if anyone uh, believes the government is going to shut down this time, but I also don't know if anyone has a good roadmap for how the Congress gets to any kind of long-term agreement based on the dispute as it stands between Republicans and Democrats. Um, I don't cover the issue that I believe is the germ of that dispute, which is immigration and what's right. become of the millions of Americans who were brought to the United States as children illegally, uh, but who have grown up for all intents and purposes as Americans and who live in the United States and have children who are U.S. citizens and speak English and so forth and so on. Um, I have the impression, based on the comments, especially by the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, that they don't believe the last shutdown they attempted went that well. And so there may be some additional concessions that take place by Democrats, especially in the Senate, to some kind of short-term spending deal that keeps the government open perhaps for another couple of weeks or another couple of months so that everyone involved can try again on some kind of negotiation. Um, the sticking point appears to be the details of whatever form that negotiation results in, in terms of a deal on immigration and the so-called dreamers. And um, right now, as we're sitting here, it doesn't look like anyone knows the way forward from that. No, and um, the president in the State of the Union talked about a path to citizenship, which riled the most conservative part of the Republican Party. So <laughs> it seems like we don't know where that stands on both sides. That's right. And, and the president is kind of trying to um, 
thread a needle between what appears to be his own desires or um, the path that he wants to take and where many of his supporters are on this issue, which is a problem that's familiar to any president. He wants to protect his flanks and keep his coalition together as much as he can. And um, I don't know if he'll ever be able to get there uh, because I don't know unless if there is a big disruption from a long-term shutdown or something else, whether many people feel that they have any incentive um, to give on this issue. And if uh, Republicans feel like they're winning and if Republicans feel like they're happy with what's been described as a, a more aggressive policy by the Trump administration toward, for example, deporting people or taking some of the um, all but technically Americans and sending them back to countries that they left when they were five, um, as been has been happening in some cases, um, Republicans don't have any any reason to change that because they think that's the correct policy. The Russian sanctions issue is a fascinating story, and I don't pretend to understand the complete perspective there either, except to say that there was all this reporting on uh, the days leading up to the last memo mania that the uh, Treasury Department had gone to Forbes magazine and cribbed from its list of the most powerful or the wealthiest Russians to put on something that Congress had required the administration to do, which was to list the powerful oligarchs inside Russia uh, for the perspective uh, punishment that could take place if there's more unpleasantness between the United States and Russia. These are um, wealthy people who control former state-owned enterprises or are big bankers or arms dealers or whatever, all of whom are in the orbit of uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. And although there may still be some concern among Russians about having been on this list, there was no surprises, according to what I remember from the statements that were made at the time. These were people who already expected to be potential targets of sanctions, or uh, people who already knew that they were the you know 30th richest person in Russia because um, they'd seen the Forbes magazine list when it came out. Um, there doesn't seem to be much heat from Republicans or from the president's supporters to really crack down on the Russian sanctions beyond the ones that are already in place. And the Trump administration has said all along that it is trying to build new bridges between the United States and Russia. This was something that Trump campaigned on. And so for its own purposes, it is going along with its own policy as opposed to following some new crackdown based on the law that was passed by Congress. Democrats clearly were very upset by that. In fact, uh, Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill, I remember very clearly, wrote on Twitter, Congress passed a law. The president is refusing to enact it. And we've got a constitutional crisis. Um, I'm not sure how many people agree with her about the gravity of this specific situation. But clearly, the principle for her was quite disturbing that Congress could express its will in this law passed overwhelmingly by both chambers. And the president could kind of shrug and his administration not take it seriously as lawmakers intended. Meanwhile, we have uh, Republican Congress people and senators saying, uh, we're not going to run again. Trey Gowdy just uh, announced uh, this week of speculation about the speaker. He won't say that he is going to run. Everybody expects him to. But uh, is this a result of fear of the 2018 midterms or just we've had it? I'm done. I'm out of here. I think there's a little bit of everything based on the way that um – 
the politicians talk about it. Um, some of these are bold-faced names who, frankly, I was astonished to hear have decided not to run again. Uh, Daryl Issa, who was the longtime chairman of the House Oversight right. Committee, who is a real scourge uh, for Hillary Clinton in the Obama administration for many years, he said he's not going to run again. Mr. Gowdy from South Carolina, who you just mentioned, who's the current chairman of that Oversight Committee, and he's kind of the star among Republicans on the uh, House Judiciary Committee, among others. And the chairman of that committee, Bob Goodlatte of Virginia, also uh, says he's not going to run again. In the case of Goodlatte and a couple of other of these key people, uh, Rodney Feelinghausen, a Republican uh, congressman from New Jersey, they are coming up against procedural term limits within the House, which mean that they can't continue to hold those chairmanship positions. And in some of those cases, like Freelinghausen and Goodlatte, I think they're thinking, we've had enough of this. I would like to continue to be, for example, Freelinghausen, uh, the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. And if I can't do that anymore, it's not as much fun to stay in Congress. And so they're going to bow out. In the case of ISA and other Republicans like him, there appear to be some real dangers in his district in California. I, I think he lives down in Orange County below Los Angeles right. from Democrats in 2018. Um, there certainly from the initial polling appears to be a huge enthusiasm uh, gap between Republicans and Democrats going into this midterm year. Democrats are hopping mad at uh, President Trump at the work of Republicans, including their big tax bill that they passed at the end of the last year. And Republicans appear to feel that their voters are not going to protect them and protect these majorities, especially in the House, which is why in the case of a lot of these guys, they've decided that it's going to be safer for them to retire than to run again and lose, which nobody wants to happen. Um, we'll just have to see how effectively those trends play out over the course of the year. And the other thing is, it is um, very typical for an incumbent administration to lose seats in Congress right. in its first midterm. It's only not happened once or twice that I can think of uh, off the top of my head since World War II. And so although there might be an enthusiasm gap and there might be a wave of Democratic support, this also is very much in line with the way American voters have behaved every time they change the party in the White House they then constrain the ability of that president to govern in that first midterm that comes up two years later. Phil, one last question. Uh, as somebody, just the average person out here in, in the heartland, uh, what should we be looking at or looking for in, in the next week or 10 days? Uh, what, what should we have our antenna up for? I guess my advice would be to watch what Robert Mueller does, the special counsel. Um, the Congress last year undertook a lot of these investigations and a lot of this process with the commitment that if Mueller was going to act in secret as a law enforcement officer, uh, Congress members in the House and the Senate could complete public reports and give the American people a sense uh, about the attack that took place in 2016 on the election by the Russians. The fact of that attack is not in dispute. It's been detailed extensively in open testimony and in court documents and by other reporting, but it's never been comprehensively put together and accounted for. And at this point, that may not happen because as we've been discussing, the House Intelligence Committee has kind of descended into a 
partisan mudslinging match. The Senate Intelligence Committee is very kind of circumscribed and takes place mostly behind the scenes. It mostly doesn't convene open hearings anymore. Its chairman, Richard Burr of North Carolina, is very seldom seen and almost never opens his mouth. And so for people who want to be engaged on the story and see what's happening that makes a difference, Mueller is the one to watch. He's not uh, inflicted with this partisan uh, craziness that takes place in Congress. He doesn't have to go out and look good for the TV cameras. He doesn't have voters to try and placate or please. He is doing work based on his own uh, professional instincts, based on the team that he's put together of FBI investigators and Justice Department attorneys. And if he points to something and says it's important with his actions, with his filings, with his indictments or charges or other process of that kind, that's where the focus should be, I think, in terms of the investigation. Um, Congress may or may not issue a series of reports at some point this year that tries to lay out a narrative about what actually happened in 2016. I hope it does because I'd sure like to have somebody uh, with access to government information and secrets write such a report. But at this point, we might not be able to count on it. Mueller's is the investigation to pay attention to, and his work will ultimately most likely be the most uh, consequential that comes out of this era. Phil, as always, thank you so much for your expertise. You put things in perspective for us, and that's very important. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today, we've been talking with NPR National Security Editor Phil Ewing. He's given us some insight into what is really happening on several fronts in Washington, D.C. Spectrum is produced by WWB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at Stitcher, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. You can do that through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.